We need to have our eyes removed. No one had to teach your child to see themselves as the center of the universe. In fact, many of us as parents can attest to spending countless hours during our child's uh, adolescent years teaching them that they indeed are not the center of the universe. See, a clear sign that you have been re regenerated from above is that through the cleansing power and the blasted breath of the Holy Spirit, your eyes have been removed. The priority of the converted life becomes not I, but Jesus. Above all ambitions, not I, Jesus. Above all allegiances, not I, Jesus. Above all perceived wrongs, not I, Jesus. Above all comforts, not I, but Jesus. In our passage this morning, we will see that John the Baptist is one who had his eyes removed. John the Baptist would declare, as I sum it up in my own words, not I, but above all, Jesus. His presence, his exaltation, that is what completes my joy. Not I, but above all, Jesus. So let us now unfold this passage together. We're going to look at 22 through 24, which I said will be kind of a diversion from the point, but we're going to get to the point afterwards, okay? So 22, uh, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. So in this section, we're setting the scene to set us up to the point of the passage. See, here is what we would call what the literal context is. Here is what is going on literally, literarily, and uh, historically. So there's two baptisms, and the disciples of Jesus and the disciples of John the baptize, uh, baptizer are baptizing in two different locations. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have traveled outside of Jerusalem to the Judean countryside. John the Baptist and his disciples are a bit further south in a place with plenty of water. And both groups are performing baptisms. And see, baptism in this early New Testament time was for the remission of sin and a return to the covenant. To the Jewish leaders, it was thought that a good Jew did not need a baptism. So this call from John the Baptist to baptize Jews was kind of an unheard of thing. Because to them, a Jewish, a good Jewish man, a good Jewish woman would not need to be baptized. Because baptized were for unclean Gentiles. Uh, There's no way that they could be ceremonially clean and come into the temple area or come into worship because they were Gentiles. They needed this ceremonial cleansing in order to come in and, and be part of the covenant. But John the Baptist's intention is that all needed to repent for the remission of sin because the king was coming and, and their savior was coming and you needed to get right. It's time to get ready because here he comes. You need to return to the covenant that God has promised. Well, these two groups, this baptism was a, was a paving of the way, right? It's a paving of the way for the Messiah to come. It's kind of this idea, you better repent and be baptized because the king is coming. And now these uh, baptisms, one being attributed to Jesus, 
Now, although when we look at chapter 4, verse 2, uh, you will see that in chapter 4, verse 2, it says, although Jesus did not baptize himself, but the disciples. So we said it was not Jesus who was baptizing here, although it is attributed to him, but under his teaching, all of those that were being baptized in his group were attributed to him as he was the teacher leader of that group. To the other, uh, John the Baptist, these were all this outward sign of cleansing, an outward sign of cleansing that was reflecting an inward commitment to repentance. One way we might compare this outward baptism of this time and the outward baptism of today is to think of John the Baptist type of baptism as looking forward to a change. See, come and be baptized, repent and be part of the kingdom. We're looking forward to God changing you, to God transforming you, a kind of a looking forward. That is that they would be baptized and therefore they would be purified, right? Well, in the church age, believers' water baptism is an outward expression of a change that has already taken place. That is, it has already occurred. Think about how Paul teaches this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. He says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. See, the outward celebration of the church and water baptism is a public declaration of what Paul is describing here as having already occurred in the Christian by the regeneration of the soul from heaven. This has already happened in the person's life. Do you not know that all who were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? and baptized into his resurrection. That's that's who you are. Even the thief on the cross who didn't come down and have a ceremony where he was water baptized was baptized into Christ by faith, by grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, having breathed life into him, having been washed, as it were, like it says, as showered from heaven. He was showered from heaven when he received Christ on the cross. So our outward expression of baptism through the church is what has already occurred in the believer's life, that we've been showered from above. We've been blasted with the living breath of God. And the believer celebrates that truth ceremonially through the water baptism in the church. The the Nicene uh, Nicene Creed uh, confession is, is drawn from this idea in this text. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We acknowledge that all who believe have been regenerated from above, is what that statement says. And some people would say, well, baptism doesn't save you. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the baptism of God, of being baptized into Christ, right? We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And that is we acknowledge that all who believe have been regenerated from above and are infused with Christ, infused with his death and resurrection. We acknowledge this then, what Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 3, verse 5. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Water baptism, then, in the church is an outward declaration of a heaven-born inward reality in the Christian. Therefore, we as a church must be careful. We must be careful. And I think Joe's looking at me because we acknowledge one that was horribly done. We must be careful not to baptize unregenerated people. We must be very careful not to do that as a church. We must be careful to baptize believers. And why? For their sake, so that we give them no false assurance that they are indeed regenerated. You know how sometimes people say, I've been baptized and therefore I'm good. You've had a, you got dunked in water in a tub in a building and that saved you somehow? We cannot give them that assurance, friends. And that is certainly not what the Scripture teaches concerning baptism. As we have seen, and we're going to continue to see in our study, that that Jesus takes all that is ceremonial and shows us that our life in Him is much more than a ceremonial purification. That it is a purification that is eternal. It is a purification that is accomplished through Jesus. It is a purification that is accomplished by God's gracious act in regenerating us. And the point is, is that it's not outward. It's not earthly. It's not baptism. It is God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, Jesus the Son of God, washes and regenerates the believer from above by grace through faith. So that sets us up to get to the point. So here we go. Now, a discussion arose, this is verse 25, between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came and they, uh, they came to John and they said to him, Rabbi, who, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptized and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive one, even one thing, unless it is given from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom uh, who stands and hears him, he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So this discussion arises over purification. And John, uh, the Baptist disciples, and a Jew are in this discussion over ceremonial cleanliness. John's disciples felt that there was a bigger issue than that at hand, though. As you see, it kind of starts with this discussion over purification. And then they ask a deeper question. They, they, have, a, they have a bigger problem. They see a more pressing issue here. And the more pressing issue they, they see here is that people are leaving you to follow Jesus. That's the big deal to them. People are leaving you to follow Jesus. We are losing influence. Our numbers will be depleted if this continues. We will become insignificant. Jesus is robbing you of your prominence. That is the issue that they're having. If we want our influence to grow, maybe we should change location. Maybe our location here is not the right place. Maybe we should go where Jesus is. Maybe we should baptize in the way that he, his people are doing it. 
Maybe we should go be with him. Well, isn't this the basic problem of human arrogance and pride? It says that it's all about me. If someone else is ahead of me, if someone else has more than me, I want what they have. I must have first place. Because second is really the first loser, right? I need to have first place. Second just won't do. We can act like that in ministry sometimes, where ABC Church has more attenders, and we say, I want a bigger crowd. Therefore, I want what they have. I want the influence that they have. What are they doing that I'm not doing? Individually, it can look like this. We'll say, we have a church member. Her name is Mrs. Robinson, and she, she hosts the ladies at her house after church, and 20 ladies come, but... Mrs. Jones says, when I host the same thing, I'm lucky to get eight people to show up. This is unfair. You see, because I'm a better leader and a better host than her. I should have what she has. Well, notice John the Baptist's response to them in verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. See, John is not frustrated by the question. He's not frustrated by the situation at all. You see, John the Baptist has had his eye removed. If anything is given to me, it is because it was received as a gift from God. Why should I boast about a gift received or long for what I have not been given? Because you see, John the Baptist would say, it's not about me. I have had my eye removed. It's not I, but him. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John the Baptist would say to his disciples, in essence, when called by God to this ministry, it became nothing about me and all about Jesus. The I has been removed from my life. My life is no longer my own. My purpose is no longer about influence or position. My purpose is the kingdom. My life belongs to him. Not I, but Jesus. So it is with all who have been born from above. The autonomy that we once clung to is no more. It is Christ who does as he pleases. When the I has been removed from our lives, we become people whose aim is not I pleasing, pleasing myself, but Him pleasing. Not I, but Jesus. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Everyone who belongs to the kingdom belongs to Christ. John is intimating here, how arrogant would it be? This is me paraphrasing him to his disciples. How arrogant would it be for me, the one who was sent to make straight the way of the Lord, to covet that which only belongs to him? All of those whom God has given me to baptize and those who have departed to him were never mine in the first place. They all belonged to him. John's disciples would no doubt be familiar with the scriptures that referred to the people of God, Israel as his bride, and God as their husband. It is those who belong 
to the bridegroom, right? He says, so the one who's standing there as his friend does not get jealous, does not covet and want what it is that the bridegroom has. He's there to support the bride, the bride and to, to elevate the bride for the bridegroom, right? He's there to be a support. Hosea 2, uh, 16 through 20 and Isaiah 62 and 5 kind of give us this idea of Israel as the bride. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from, from your mouth, and they shall be remembered no more. And I will make a, for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety, and I will betroth you to me forever." I will, betroth, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Isaiah 62, 5 says, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices, rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. We should not covet the success of other Christians or desire to take from them. See, the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. Throughout the New Testament, there are references to the church being the bride. 2 Corinthians 11.2, for example, Paul talks about those who have come to faith in his ministry with a love for them that is born out of to whom they belong. I love you because of who you belong to. Right? And in, in 2 Corinthians 11, 2, he says, For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. We need to have our eyes removed, not only as it pertains to our vertical relationship with the Father and to our inner relationship with Christ the Bridegroom, but also in our horizontal relationships with those to whom we share a common bridegroom. In pastoral ministry, I've had these conversations with professing Christians, and they go like this. Jeff, I sacrifice in a way for people, in this way. I serve in this way with my time, my energy, my resources. There are other brothers and sisters in our congregation, by the way, Jeff, that you know, that don't do it like I do it. They don't serve in the same way that I do it. And I question whether or not they're even a Christian. I've had these conversations. Or one like this. Jeff, I like messages that only speak about the comfort from the Scriptures. Jeff, I want music that is styled like the popular music I hear on the radio. Jeff, I want church to be only an hour. (laughs) Jeff, I want church to be spontaneous. Well, as we look at verse 29, again, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John the Baptist says, I am a friend of the bridegroom, and by grace my eyes have been removed. So it's not about my exaltation that fills my joy. Uh, it is the presence, the voice, and the exaltation of the one who saved me that makes my joy complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. I gladly give up my rank. That's what this, that's what John the Baptist is saying. I gladly give up my rank 
my status, my rights, my preferences. I have had my eyes removed. Isaiah 9, 7 says that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. That's speaking of Jesus. He must increase. Not I, but Jesus. Above all ambitions, not I, but Jesus. Above all allegiances, not I, but Jesus. Above all perceived wrongs, not I, but Jesus. Above all comforts, not I, but Jesus. For those born from above, church community is the same thing. It is the bride of Christ. It is His community. And He'd not be jealous over the community of what God has bestowed upon them, what God has gifted them, what Jesus has gifted them. It is not I, but Jesus and His bride becomes the focus of the born-again believer's life. Not, Not Jesus and me makes three. It's not I, but Jesus. And because Jesus loved His bride and laid His life down for her, I love her too. It's not about my preferences between me and individual member in there either. It's not I, but Jesus. And Jesus loves His bride and laid His life down for His church. Not I, but Jesus and His church. You know, I used to think that when I first uh, became part of pastoral ministry that it was really about teaching people how to come to life, how to live. But I've come to understand that ministry is much more often about teaching people how to die. It really is. It's, it's, it's a lot more about teaching them to remove the I from their thinking. Praying for God's grace that He would remove the I from their heart. Teaching people to die is more often what pastoral ministry looks like. There were two baptisms in our passage There were two men, but there's only one Savior. He must must increase, but I must decrease. See, the must in this language is a transliteration of this phrase. It is the determined will of God that I decrease. It's exactly what it means when it says must. It is the determined will of God that I decrease. It is the determined will of God that he increase. And so when you think about Isaiah 9, 7, that the increase of his government will never end, that's the determined will of God. The determined will of God is that Christ's government will never end. It will continue forever and ever and and build and grow. It is the determined will of God that I must decrease and he must increase. The, term, the determined will of God for the Christian is that we decrease in our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, our self-determination, our self-exaltation. And God's determined will is that Christ grow in, in preeminence in our hearts and our minds and our lives and in our thinking. Like Colossians 1, uh, 15 through 20 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. John the Baptist says, I rejoice in the preeminence of Christ, of Jesus. My eye has been removed by grace. It is not I, but it is the exalted Jesus. I rejoice in him. Let us look at 31 through 36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Well, many Bible translators see this section as a continuation of John the Baptist's statement to his disciples in verse 27. But I think here, the ESV translators rightly see this section as a recapitulation and a teaching explanation from the Apostle John, the evangelist himself. It's a recapitulation of what just they just saw. Here's the teaching moment, right? He who comes from above is above all. He's saying, this is what John just, John the Baptist just told you. And this is, I, I think, a, a, a good way to look at this, that it is uh, John the Apostle here teaching the point of John the Baptist's discussion with his disciples. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You see, the determined will of God has given new birth from grace, by grace from above, through faith in the one who came from above. See, our salvation comes from above, as we saw last week when John said, you, one must be born again. When Jesus said, you must be born again, that is, you must be regenerated from above. Our salvation is an act of God from above, and our faith is in the person who came from above, is what John is reiterating here. The determined will of God is given new birth from above, by grace, through faith, in the one who came from above. John the Baptist could offer an earthly baptism of repentance but the one who comes from heaven is the only one who can baptize sinners into new life. He offered an earthly baptism. He who speaks of the earth speaks of the earth. He who speaks of heaven speaks of heaven. But the salvific work of, of being regenerated could only be done by the one who came from above, right? Only the one who came from above can baptize a sinner into new life. Not John the Baptist, not I, but Jesus. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. John the Baptist bears witness to what he has seen and heard, but Jesus testifies to what he knows. Yet his testimony is rejected by the unregenerate soul. John is saying the same thing that Jesus said in chapter 3, verse 11. If you remember from last week, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you that we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. 
To reject the truth is to reject, reject Christ himself. To reject Christ is to reject God. To reject Christ is to reject the truth, is to reject the right testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. To receive the testimony of Jesus Christ is to believe God. To believe Jesus is to believe God. It is not Jesus. It is Jesus. But it is not I who speak the very words of God, John the Baptist would say, and John the Apostle would say. It is Jesus, not I, who speaks the very words of God. It is Jesus who is filled with the measure, the full measure of this Holy Spirit of God in him. It is in Jesus, not I, that is the source of truth. It is in Jesus whose resources and spirit will never be depleted. It is in Jesus who can fill all that the born from above need for faith and practice in this life. It is all in Jesus. The Father loves the Son, and He has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on Him. You see, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. Above all, it is Jesus who is preeminent. The evangelist, the Apostle John, leaves us here, the hearer, in a moment of crisis. Doesn't he? Since the gospel has been presented and it's all about Jesus, it's not I, it's not you, not an earthly understanding, but above all, it's Jesus, and it's only Jesus. New birth is needed. You must, according to the will of God, be born from above by faith in the one who is from above. There is salvation in no other name, not I but Jesus. Believe and obey the Son and you have been given eternal life. Or receive not His testimony and the judgment your sin deserves and the wrath of God is all that remains. There's the statement. Do you see that there isn't any room for fence writing? None. There's absolutely no room for fence writing here. It's either genuine faith born from above or defiant disobedience. That's the two camps of humanity. Genuine faith born from above or defiant disobedience. All of humanity is one of those two camps. They're either born from above and given genuine faith by God's grace, God's unmerited, undeserved personal favor towards knuckleheads like you and me, or we are just defiant, disobedient sinners, hateful to God. There's no fence riding. There's no middle choice. There's no like sincere faith in something else. Jesus from above is above all things, and Jesus from above is above all people. Do you want to know or test if you've had your eyes removed? What is a test to know if you've had your eye removed? It is this. Genuine faith born from above obeys the one sent from above. One who is born from above obeys the one who was sent from above, but obeys not out of compulsion, not out of fear. Obeys because they realize that the one who was sent from above was the Father's love for a sinner like you and a sinner like me. Obedience becomes an act of love towards the Father. 
Not I, but Jesus. It's a love that denies ourselves, right? We don't have any problem loving ourselves, people. I, I hate to tell you this because, you know, the news and the medias would tell, and media outlets everywhere and shows and everything would tell you, all you have to do is embrace yourself and love yourself more. We don't have to teach you to do that. None of you has to be taught to love yourself more than you love God. Nobody. Right? But if you've had your eye removed, if you've had the eye removed from your life, it's not I, but Jesus. Right? Obeying Jesus, that's an act of love because of the love given to you. Believe and obey the Son and you've been given eternal life. No fence riding. If your eye has been removed, genuine faith born from above obeys the one sent from above. Genuine faith born from above by grace through faith loves also those who were born from above. It's expressed in love for the others like you who were born from above. It's not jealous of them. It's not that if they get this and I don't, right? That somehow God has shown them favor and he's not showing me favor, so therefore I must covet and desire what they want or cut them down when nobody else is around to hear this, right? I want what they have. No. Genuine faith born from above has the eye removed, not only vertically, but also horizontally. Not I, but my brother. Not I, but my sister. I want this. I want comfort, whatever it might be. This person is making me uncomfortable. This person is hard to be around. This person is hard to love. Not I. Not I, but Jesus. Genuine faith born from above holds others in greater esteem than themselves. The mantra of the converted is the will of God for me is I need to lose my eye. The will of God is that Christ alone would grow in my estimation, that it Christ alone would grow in, in my loyalty, that Christ would grow in my love and my affections, my preferences. Not I, but Jesus. Above all ambitions, not I, but Jesus. Above all allegiances, not I, but Jesus. Above every time somebody, I perceive a wrong from another brother and sister, not I, but Jesus. Above all things that make me comfortable, above all comforts, not I, but Jesus. Above all my preferences, not I, but Jesus. Above all things, Jesus. I know I said that a lot. But above all, it's about Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. It's all about Him.